At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 10, Part 2, The Cold War in the Mediterranean, 1945-1950, to or The Mediterranean World in the Age of Stalin. So in our last segment, we examined Spain and France in the early Cold War context. In this segment, we will be examining Italy and Yugoslavia. Starting in the 1890s, Italy witnessed an economic boom with 2.1% GDP growth from 1896 to 1914, under Prime Minister Giovanni Giolitti. Most of the growth occurred in northern Italy, benefiting the middle class and wealthy. Heavy industry like automobile manufacturing, engineering, and chemicals expanded greatly. Other industries such as textiles, cotton, and silk saw huge gains as well. Northern Italy also benefited from the introduction of hydroelectric power plants, which electrified the region and ignited the economy. Italy also enjoyed a huge rise in tourism revenue as Italy and much of the world became more accessible as a result of steam power in the form of ships and trains. Remittances also fueled Italy's growth as Italians working overseas sent money home, as 6 million Italians had immigrated overseas from 1900 to 1910. Southern Italy, in contrast to the north, was poor. It saw little economic growth with overpopulation and high unemployment, as many continued to live subsistence lives based on agriculture. In all, some 59% of the Italian workforce depended on farming, and millions more worked on the land seasonally. Giolitti was a pragmatic politician. His greatest concern was with the stability and strength of the state. He therefore tried to walk a tightrope between the needs of business and workers. Business wanted to make greater profits, and workers demanded a higher standard of living. He invested heavily in public works to grow the economy and help business, but he also helped workers. In 1902, he banned child labor and restricted the working day for women to 11 hours. In 1907, he instituted a compulsory day of rest. He created a maternity fund in 1910 and established a sickness and old age fund for certain professions. However, he refused to become involved in labor disputes. This strategy of non-involvement would ironically backfire. Inevitably, violence broke out during disputes between labor and business, and the police would be called in. Protesters were killed, and the radical left ultimately blamed Giolitti for not preventing the violence. On the right, Giolitti, along with the concept of liberal democracy itself, was resented, especially by a group of young radical intellectuals called the Nationalists. They saw liberal democracy as an effete and corrupt, unable to save the nation from socialism. They saw Giolitti's pragmatism as a moral weakness and failing. They believed that Italy required a strong romantic vision to drive the nation forward, something akin to the American Manifest Destiny of the 19th century or the American Dream of the 20th. The Nationalists, however, lacked any coherent vision of themselves about Italy. However, they did have a deep belief in the value of war as a purifying force and as a method that could bring about social unity. 
They believed that war would teach Italians how to die for an ideal. Many on the right and business were attracted to the nationalist ideas as they believed that Gioletti was weak on the socialist. High government spending on defense also made some of these industrialists natural allies of the nationalists. Gioletti, in an attempt to appease these forces, declared war on the Ottoman Empire and invaded Libya in 1911, although Gioletti was worried as well about France invading Libya as she had conquered Tunisia and Algeria and part of Morocco. The war was a great success for Italy, as they quickly defeated the Ottomans in the space of a year and captured Libya with very few casualties. However, the right gave Gioletti very little credit for the war, and the socialists denounced him for being an imperialist. The Libyan War ultimately destroyed the balanced approach Gioletti had been struggling to make in Italian politics. After this, the extremes of both right and left-wing politics grew in Italy. By December, the communists had 100,000 members, and even the anarchists saw their numbers grow. By June 1914, a series of violent strikes rocked Italy in what became Red Week. By August 1914, World War I broke out. Italy had been allied with Austria and, and Germany since 1882, but Austria had not consulted them before their invasion of Serbia, so Italy declared neutrality. Many elites and politicians in Italy feared, however, that if Italy remained neutral, they would have no say in the future of Europe after the war. In the end, the prime minister, with the foreign minister, without the approval of parliament, the king, or the army, arranged to have Italy join the war on the side of the Allies in the hopes that they could seize pieces of Austria in any post-war settlement. During the next three years, Italy lost 600,000 men in the snow-covered mountains of the Alps. Conditions in the army were severe, even by World War I standards. Rations were poor, pay was extremely low, and leave restricted to just 15 days. Discipline was extremely harsh. Decimation was even practiced on occasion. Decimation is a punishment by which one out of every ten men is selected and the other nine have to beat him to death. The punishment is designed to instill fear of command and complicity with future orders. Between 1915 and 1919, nearly 300,000 Italian soldiers were court-martialed, mainly for desertion. Despite these hardships, many, especially junior officers, were positive about their time in the army, especially figures like Mussolini. In contrast to the, the Italian communists, were opposed to Italy's participation in the war. The First World War further deepened the divide between the left and the right in Italy. The Italian economy struggled to make the transition from a war to peace. Arms and munitions factories closed overnight, causing a spike in unemployment, which was compounded by millions of soldiers returning home from the front. Wages were cut and inflation soared while the standard of living dropped. The socialists, anarchists, and communists reacted with strikes and violence. Employers and landlords faced with terrifying levels of violence looked to the government for help, but the government refused to take a side partly out of fear, but also because they believed that revolution, like in Russia, could be averted through compromise. This approach reached a climax with the occupation of factories in 1920, when for nearly four weeks, workers took control of factories and expelled managers raising red banners. The far right and industrialists responded by forming armed squads of men, or the famed black shirts. Usually led by ex-junior officers composed of ex-servicemen and backed by the police, these forces crushed the working-class movement in a few weeks. The army and police, who were often the target of socialist attacks, openly supported the black shirts, providing arms, ammunition, transport, and a blind eye to their acts of criminal brutality. The eruption of the fascist movement via the black shirts in the winter of 1920-21 through 21 surprised and alarmed Mussolini. 
Before this, the party had been composed of mostly right-wing intellectuals. But the black shirts, by contrast, were, re were reactionary and were, in effect, tools of the local landlords, businessmen, and factory owners who sponsored them. They were inspired by little more than their hatred of socialism and a love of violence. Mussolini convinced the government that he could control this movement as the government feared what the black shirts might do now that the communists had been crushed. Thus, Mussolini had to walk a tightrope between the black shirts who wanted some type of revolution in Italy and the traditional conservative forces in Italy who wanted political stability. Believing his promises, Mussolini was summoned to Rome by the king to become the youngest prime minister of Italy at 39. Mussolini allowed the black shirts to march through the streets of Rome in order to foster the illusion that a revolution had taken place, despite the fact that he had taken power in a lawful, traditional process. The government he established was a traditional one. Three cabinet positions were given to fascists, the rest to liberals. The black shirts were reorganized under his central command. Nationalists and other conservatives were quickly brought into the fascist party. He then returned property to the landlords. He gave large sums of money for the construction of churches and made religious instruction mandatory in elementary schools, all efforts to appease the traditional conservative forces in Italy. The black shirts were unhappy with this arrangement and threatened Mussolini that if he did not move the revolution forward, they would unleash a reign of terror. So on Jan January the 3rd, 1925, he entered Parliament and proclaimed a dictatorship. Neither the deputies nor the king moved to oppose him for fear of civil war. The new fascist government was an ad hoc and never assumed a de definitive form. The king and constitution remained in place, the bureaucracy was untouched, and the police remained unchanged, more or less. Mussolini did set about purging the fascist party, though, expelling some 60,000 members, many of whom were members of the black shirts. He brought in civil servants, school teachers, and public officials to make the party more respectable. By the 1930s, the new fascist man was no longer the barroom-fighting militant from the 1920s, but a patriotic, hard-working, church-going father. The press was censored and newspapers were brought into line. The police were given greater power to arrest, and the rights of individuals took a backseat to the needs of the state. However, there was a certain level of free speech tolerated as long as you didn't make negative comments about Mussolini. So fascism was nothing like Stalinism, as we saw in the Soviet Union. The economy under fascism was very similar to that of the Gilentian period. Heavy industrial growth in the north with very little change in the South. The Great Depression, strangely enough, affected Italy less than most of the world. When the banks began to have trouble, the Italian state stepped in and took control. Other industries were nationalized as well, such as steel, shipping, and electricity. In Europe, only the Soviet Union controlled a larger sector of the economy. The state also introduced welfare schemes to compensate workers for loss of pay and introduced Christmas bonuses in the late 1930s. But this soon drove up Italy's national debt. But the fascists really didn't care about money, as they sought public support and believed that the spiritual foundations of the nation were more important than the material. Fascism, because of its roots and romanticism, argued that will, not reason, should shape the destiny of the state. The fascists tried to create a, a cult of personality around Mussolini with a set of myths and symbols built around the state. The history of ancient Rome and the fascist connection with it was emphasized. Slogans like, quote, live dangerously, close quote, and Quote, better to live one day as a lion than a hundred years as a sheep, close quote, expressed the beliefs of the new state and society. The handshake was done away with in favor of the Roman straight-arm salute. Naturally, the schools were transformed to teach the new state ideology. Internationally, the new state faced rebellion in Libya in 1932, which was brutally suppressed with chemical weapons and concentration camps. 
1935, in an attempt to live up to the Roman example, Mussolini invaded Ethiopia. The invasion was successful, but Italy paid a high price. Sanctions were placed on Italy by the League of Nations, and Italy walked out of the League. The regime lost its credibility, especially with France and Britain. Therefore, diplomatically, Italy moved towards Nazi Germany and became more militant in challenging the international order. In 1936, as we saw in our last segment, Mussolini sent thousands of troops to fight in Spain in support of Franco. Then, in a show of solidarity with his new ally Germany, Mussolini passed a series of laws against the Jews in 1938, despite the fact that many had been early supporters of the regime. In spite of the fascist love of war, Italy was ill-prepared for a prolonged conflict. It lacked equipment, supplies, and training, lacking even basic items like uniforms and trucks. Their tanks were outdated, the Air Force had no long-range bombers, and most of its fighters were obsolete. There were no plans prepared for a war with either France or Britain. Italy's biggest problem was leadership and its faith and will over technology. They believed the morale of the forces was more important than technology, and will would be the dominant factor in any future battle. When the war broke out in 1939, Italy was caught off guard. They had not suspected that Hitler would begin a war until 1942. Understanding that Italy was ill-prepared, Mussolini declared neutrality. However, with France collapsing in 1940, Mussolini joined Germany in the anticipated German victory, hoping to grab some easy spoils. The war went poorly for Italy from the beginning. Italian forces were initially rebuffed in the French Alps. In late 1940, Italy decided to invade Greece, only to be repulsed by the Greeks, with Germany ultimately coming to the rescue. At sea, the Italian navy was soundly defeated by the British. In the spring of 1941, Ethiopia and Italian East Africa were liberated by the British. Late in 1941, in support of his ally, Mussolini committed 300,000 men to the invasion of the Soviet Union, thousands of whom would not return home dying in battle or perishing in Soviet prison camps. In 1943, Libya fell to the British and Italy itself was facing invasion. On the home front, morale was eroded by bombings and food shortages. In March of 1943, Italy saw its first major strikes for the first time in 20 years as the regime began to lose control of the country. With a disastrous war and economic collapse, government deputies met and decided to remove Mussolini from power. The king requested to speak with Mussolini, and when he arrived, he was arrested. Fascism had come to an end. Despite four million party members, no one showed the slightest show of resistance or protest. In short order, the northern half of the country was occupied by the Germans and made a puppet state, the Italian Social Republic, or ISR headed by a rescued Mussolini, while the South was governed by monarchist and liberal forces which fought for the Allied cause, held by partisans of disparate political ideologies that operated all over occupied Italy. The final Allied victory over the Axis in Italy did not come until the spring offensive of 1945, after Allied troops had breached the Gothic line, leading to the surrender of the Germans and RSI forces in Italy on the 2nd of May, shortly before Germany finally surrendered, ending World War II in Europe. Mussolini was captured and killed by partisans on the 28th of April, 1945, while attempting to flee. He was hung upside down and mutilated along with his mistress. Italy lost control of its North African colony, Libya, as it was administered by France and Britain from 1943 to 1951. Under the terms of the 1947 peace treaty with the Allies, Italy relinquished all claims to Libya on the 21st of November, 1949, The U.N. General Assembly passed a resolution stating that Libya should become an independent state before January 1, 1952. 
On December the 24th, 1951, Libya declared its independence as the United Kingdom of Libya, a constitutional and hereditary monarchy. The Italian population that lived there virtually disappeared after the Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi ordered the expulsion of the remaining Italians, about 20,000, in 1970. After the war, Italy was devastated. 310,000 Italians had died in the war. In most places, essential services like sanitation, gas, water, and electricity had broken down for millions. Italy lost some 13,000 bridges. The marshes in southern Italy were, were flooded by the retreating German army to slow the Allied advance. These marshes had been painstakingly drained to stop the spread of disease, but with the waters back, this led to outbreaks of malaria as mosquitoes reclaimed the marshes. Food shortages were, were severe, with the average caloric intake falling to just 1,800. Beyond the physical destruction of the war, Italy faced three major political challenges. The first challenge was how far should the fascists be punished or removed from power? As we have seen, Mussolini had expanded the party to include many respectable middle-class people, and by the end of the regime, it was difficult to hold a position in the bureaucracy or government without being a member of the party. Millions of people had joined the party. Many of the more notorious fascists were shot by partisans, though, in the closing days of the war. From April to June 1945, some 15,000 people were summarily executed. Many people, like we saw in France, were innocent, but considered either class enemies or were swept up in personal feuds. However, the bureaucracy remained virtually untouched. Many court officials were ex-fascists who were handed the job of trying other ex-fascist bureaucrats. Moreover, the legal structure from the 1930s changed very little in the post-war period. In fact, much of the fascist penal code is still in place today in Italy. Of the 394,000 government employees investigated, only 15 of only 1,580 were dismissed, and the majority of those soon had their jobs back. Many Italians revolted in response to these failures, seizing people and delivering street justice via hangings. However, most officials went unpunished, returning to their positions of authority. The second challenge was what type of government should post-war Italy have? A republic? A return to the constitutional monarchy? Or a new socialist state? The king, Victor Emmanuel, was deeply compromised by his role with fascism in the 1920s and 1930s. He abdicated in favor of his son, but the Italian people were tired of the monarchy, and the majority of Italians voted to establish a republic in a 1946 national referendum. Although it should be noted, most southern Italians voted for the monarchy in contrast to the north, which voted for a republic. Finally, there was the Italian economy, which had been decimated by the war with high unemployment and inflation. Italy also faced growing problems with Sicily, which saw competing movements advocating for independence and another for joining the United States as the 49th state. This was, of course, before Alaska became a state in 1959. Sicily ultimately remained in Italy, but in those early years after the war, it was a contested question. Like we saw in France, Italy had two competing parties, the Italian Communist Party and the center-right Christian Democrats, who struggled for control of the post-war order. Like in France, initially they worked together, but eventually the Christian Democrats pushed the communists out of power. The Italian Communist Party had grown from some 50,000 in 1943 to 1.7 million by the end of 1945. In the elections for the Constituent Assembly in June 1946, the communists and their socialist allies received 38% of the vote. The communists tried to work within the democratic system, though. They steered clear of taxes on the middle class and agreed to amnesty for tens of thousands of fascists. They even agreed to recognize the Vatican and Catholicism as the official state religion uh, to the widespread shock of most. 
However, the Christian Democrats in Washington believed that they were playing a double game, pretending to be moderate while building up their strengths in the ministries, trade unions, and universities before trying to take power, as the communists had done in Czechoslovakia and Poland, waiting to seize power by force. It's also true that the communists had a, had a, st- a stockpile of arms and were capable of launching an insurrection. In reality, though, they never seriously considered using force. The Kremlin believed that an armed communist uprising in Italy would be, quote, a dangerous misadventure, close quote, surely crushed by the thousands of British and American forces stationed there. Stalin also felt that such a move would be crossing a line with the Americans, necessitating a military response from the U.S., and Stalin didn't want another world war at the moment. The 1948 Italian election campaign was bitterly contested. The Vatican threw its support behind the Christian Democrats. The Americans stepped up aid in the months before the election. The Americans also made it clear to the Italians that a communist victory in the elections would mean no Marshall Plan aid. The CIA, in one of its first missions, gave $1 million to Italian center parties and was accused of publishing forged letters in order to discredit leaders of the Communist Party. Bags of money were delivered to, to select politicians to defray their political expenses, their campaign expenses, for posters and for pamphlets. In order to influence the election, the CIA also undertook a campaign of writing 10 million letters, made numerous shortwave radio broadcasts, and funded the publishing of books and articles, all of which warned the Italians of consequences of a communist victory. To be fair, though, the Italian Communist Party was also being funded by the Soviet Union by bags of money directly out of the Soviet compound in Rome, and the Italian services were aware of this. As the elections approached, the amounts grew, and the estimates of 8 to $10 million a month actually went into the, the coffers of the Italian Communist Party. The Americans also formulated backup plans for the invasion of Italy and Sicily, especially given elements there were interested in statehood if the communists won the election. Granted, if the communists had won the election, that doesn't mean the Americans would have carried out these plans. But the fact that they were written up is an indication that the Americans saw a communist election victory as a possibility. The results of the election was an overwhelming victory for the Christian Democrats, who won 48.5% of the vote and 305 of the 574 seats in the chambers of deputies. The communists responded to the victory of the Christian Democrats through a series of strikes, riots, kidnappings, and even bombing their country's railways. In response, the government rounded up 95,000 members of the Communist Party. Of these, only 19,000 were ever tried, and only 7,000 found guilty of any crime. This pattern of Italian politics was established for the next 40 years as the system was polarized between these two major parties, with the communists locked out of power. The Christian Democrats virtually ran the country as a one-party state. One issue the Italian communists faced was that Italy had become a consumer capitalist nation in the 1920s. Italians, like many in the developed world, wanted material goods, and they had been consuming American exports before and after the war. Most Italians in the 1950s looked to Hollywood, not Moscow, for cultural influence. Moreover, large state monopolies, national self-sufficiency, and government control of the economy had led to disastrous effects under fascism. So to many Italians, Marxist ideas of economic control didn't sound that much different from fascism. Unlike France, American ideas about free trade and balanced budgets were welcomed by many Italians as a change from the disastrous fascist economy of the late 30s and 40s. Moreover, from 1943 to 1948, Italy received over $2 billion U.S. aid to rebuild the nation, with a further $1.5 billion under the Marshall Plan over the next four years. This helped to ease many of Italy's economic problems, weakening the Italian Communist Party's attraction. 
One of Italy's other big advantages in rebuilding its economy in contrast to France was a growing birth rate, especially in the South, despite the war. Italy was able to supply the manpower needed to rebuild the nation and man its industries. The period we just covered in Italian history, to me personally, is very fascinating. If it's something you're interested in as well, I would recommend checking out the movie 1900 with Robert De Niro. The movie covers this period through the lives of two lifelong friends. I must warn you, though, it's a four-hour movie in Italian with subtitles, but it's worth the watch in my opinion. The other nation I would like to cover in this uh, segment is Yugoslavia. The concept of Yugoslavia is one that was controversial during its time and is even controversial to this day. The country came into existence after World War I. It lay at the fault lines of three great empires, the Ottoman, the Austro-Hungarian, and Russian. It was therefore the meeting place of four great religions, Catholic, Christian, Orthodox, Islamic, and Jewish. The Jewish element of this ethnic salad unfortunately was wiped out in the Holocaust, as was the substantial Roma population there. It was also the home to more than half a dozen large national and ethnic minorities, all of whom had petty rivalries and jealousies for centuries. The creation of the new state was supported by Pan-Slavists and Serbian nationalists. For the Pan-Slavic movement, all of South Slav or Yugoslav people had united into a single state. For Serbian nationalists, the desired goal of uniting the majority of the Serb people across southeastern Europe into one state was also achieved. Furthermore, as Serbia already had a government, military, and police force, it was the logical choice to form the nucleus of the new Yugoslav state. The formation of the Constitution of 1921, though, sparked tensions between the different Yugoslav nationalities. Over time, hostility grew towards the Yugoslav government that many saw as being centralized in favor of Serb hegemony versus Yugoslav unity. The largest ethnic group was the Serbs, followed by Croats, Slovenians, Bosnian Muslims, Macedonians, and Albanians. Religion followed the same pattern, with half of the population following Orthodox Christianity, 40% or so being Catholic, and the rest Muslim. In such a polygot nation, tensions were frequent, but especially between Serbs and Croats. Other quarrels were those between Serbs and Macedonians, as Yugoslav gov- the Yugoslav government had it as its official position that the latter were ethnic Serbs, which the Macedonians disagreed with. The two strongest groups during this period were the Serb monarchist and the Croat peasant party, who argued endlessly about if Yugoslavia should remain a single kingdom or break up. What followed were years of hostility between the two groups and coups and assassinations with the government in a constant state of instability. But events outside of Yugoslavia were moving quickly. Fearing an invasion by the Axis powers, Regent Prince Paul signed the Tripart Pact on the 25th of March 1941, pledging cooperation with the Axis. Massive anti-Axis demonstrations followed in Belgrade. On the 27th of March, the regime of Prince Paul was overthrown by a military coup d'etat with British support. The 17-year-old Peter II was declared to be of age and placed in power. Yugoslavia withdrew its support for the Axis de facto without formally renouncing the Tripart Pact. So on April 6, 1941, the Axis powers launched the invasion of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia and quickly conquered it. During the Second World War, these ethnic divisions became so inflamed that many Yugoslavs were more interested in killing each other than killing German occupiers. Croats massacred Serbs in the name of Catholicism, Serbs torched Muslim villages for the Orthodox faith, monarchist Chetniks fought pitched battles against communist partisans, presiding over this orgy of death was, of course, the Italians and Germans, 
who joined in themselves murdering thousands of people. The Germans going so far as to execute entire towns in retaliation for partisan attacks. Out of this mixture of violent rivalries, there emerged two major opponents, the Ustaches, a far-right-wing group that had been formed by the Italians as a puppet government in a in new independent Croatia. The Ustaches committed numerous atrocities, competing with their Italian and German masters. They were responsible for killing hundreds of thousands of Serbs during the course of the war. The Ustaches were not the only far-right group in the conflict. There were Serbian, Slovenian, and Montenegrin far-right collaborator militias as well, but the Ustaches were the largest and most violent. Opposing them was the communist partisans, led by Tito. They were composed of men and women of all ethnic backgrounds, but the majority were Serbs. The Axis mounted a series of offenses intended to destroy the partisans, coming close to doing so in the winter and spring of 1943. Despite the setbacks, the partisans remained a credible fighting force, gaining recognition from the Western Allies and laying the foundations for the post-war Yugoslav state. With support in logistics and air power from the Western Allies and Soviet ground troops in the Belgrade offensive, the partisans eventually gained control of the entire country and of border regions of Italy and Austria. Yugoslavia was the site of some of the worst violence in World War II. What made the situation more intense was the many layers of conflict. Yugoslav resistance groups fought not only against the Germans and Italians, but also against their own government and alternative resistance groups and against bandits. In the aftermath of the war, there were nearly 70,000 summary executions of collaborators in contrast to the 10,000 executions of the French or the 15,000 of the Italians. When compared to the population as a whole, this is more than 10 times as bad as in Italy and 20 times as bad as in France. Overall, some 1,027,000 Yugoslavians died in the Second World War, in contrast to 310,000 Italians or half a million French, and it should be noted that Yugoslavia's population during this period was only about roughly 13 million. Economically, Yugoslavia was primarily an agricultural economy with only a little industry around Belgrade. Most people uh, were subsistence peasants, especially in the southern hilly regions of the country. Internal communications were poor, damage from World War I had been extensive, and with few exceptions, agriculture was devoid of machinery or other modern farming techniques. Nevertheless, Yugoslavia still suffered immense damage as a result of the war. 24% of their orchards were destroyed, as were 38% of their vineyards and about 60% of their livestock. The Germans and Italians had plundered millions of tons of grain, milk, and wool to feed and clothe their respective empires. After the end of the war, the monarchist government in exile and the communists agreed to hold elections in November 1945. Tito and the communists won the elections with an overwhelming majority, the, boy, the vote having been boycotted by the monarchists. During the period, Tito evidently enjoyed massive popular support due to being generally viewed by the population as the liberator of Yugoslavia. The Yugoslav administration in the immediate post-war period managed to unite a country that had been severely affected by ultra-nationalist upheavals and war devastation, while successfully suppressing the national sentiments of the various nations in favor of tolerance and a common Yugoslav goal. After the overwhelming election victory, Tito was confirmed as prime minister. The country was soon renamed the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. King Peter II was formally deposed by the Yugoslav Constituent Assembly, and the Assembly had drafted a new Republican constitution soon after. 
Yugoslav intelligence was charged with imprisoning and bringing to trial large numbers of Nazi collaborators. Controversially, this included Catholic clergymen due to the widespread involvement of Croatian Catholic clergy with the Ustase regime. In the first post-war years, Tito was widely considered a communist leader, very loyal to Moscow. Indeed, he was often viewed as second only to Stalin in the Eastern Bloc. In fact, Stalin and Tito had an uneasy alliance from the start, with Stalin considering Tito too independent. During the immediate post-war period, Tito's Yugoslavia had a strong commitment to orthodox Marxist ideas. Harsh repressive measures against dissidents were common, including arrests, show trials, forced collectivization, suppression of churches, and religion. Unlike other new communist states in East, East Central Europe, Yugoslavia liberated itself from the Axis domination with limited direct support from the Red Army. Tito's leading role in liberating Yugoslavia not only greatly strengthened his position in, in, the, in his party and among the Yugoslav people, but also caused him to be more insistent that Yugoslavia should follow its own interests. In the immediate aftermath of World War II, there occurred several uh, armed incidents between Yugoslavia and Western allies. Following the war, Yugoslavia acquired uh, the Italian territory of Istra as well as citizens of Zarba and Rizek. Yugoslav leadership was looking to incorporate Trieste into the country as well, which was opposed by the Western allies. This led to several armed incidences, notably attacks by Yugoslav fighter planes on U.S. transport aircraft, causing bitter criticism from the West. From 1945 to 1948, at least four U.S. aircraft were shot down. Stalin was opposed to these provocations. He felt the USSR was unready to face the West in open war so soon after the losses of World War II and at the time when the U.S. had operational atomic weapons, whereas the USSR hadn't yet to conduct its first test. In addition, Tito was openly supportive of the communist side in the Greek Civil War, while Stalin kept his distance, having agreed with Churchill not to pursue Soviet interests there, although he did support the Greek communist struggle politically. In 1948, motivated by the desire to create a strong independent economy, Tito modeled his economic development plan independently from Moscow, which resulted in a diplomatic escalation, followed by a bitter exchange of nasty letters between the two sides. Stalin then attempted to overthrow Tito unsuccessfully as Tito's secret police were too strong and he enjoyed widespread support. Stalin responded by expelling Tito from the common form, the successors of the common turn. It was sort of like the club for international communists. One significant consequence of the tensions arising between Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union was Tito's decision to enact a large-scale repression against any real or alleged opponents of his own. This repression was not limited to known and alleged Stalinists, but included also members of the Communist Party or anyone exhibiting sympathies towards the Soviet Union. Tito's estrangement from the USSR enabled Yugoslavia to obtain U.S. aid, as we saw in Episode 9. Still, he did not agree to align with the West, which was a common consequence of accepting American aid at the time. After Stalin's death in 1953, relations with the USSR were relaxed, and he began to receive aid as well from the Soviet Union. In this way, Tito played East-West antagonisms to his advantage. Instead of choosing sides, he was instrumental in, kicking, in kickstarting the non-alignment movement, which would function as a third way for countries interested in staying outside of the East-West divide. I want to thank you for listening to Episode 10, Part 2, Cold War in the Mediterranean. Make sure you join us for Part 3, where we will be examining Greece, which saw the first fighting of the Cold War and started the conflict in motion. In addition to Turkey, which eventually became a member of NATO and one of America's key allies in the region up to the present day.
So make sure you catch our next episode on July the 1st, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the History of the Cold War Podcast and Twitter at Cold War Podcast, Cold War Podcast, one word. To find our latest news and Cold War content, or feel free to email questions to coldwarpodcast at gmail.com, Cold War Podcast, one word.